0: Chapter Two of Mount Royal, Volume One by Mary Elizabeth Brayden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, but then came one, the lovelace of his day. Although Angus Hamley came of a good old West Country family, he had never been in Cornwall, and he approached that remote part of the country with a curious feeling that he was turning his back upon England and English civilization and entering a strange wild land where all things would be different. He would meet with a half-barbarous people, perhaps rough, unkempt, ignorant, brutal, speaking to him in a strange language, such men as inhabited Pertshire and Inverness before civilization traveled northward. He had accepted Mrs. Tregonell's invitation out of kindly feeling for the woman who had loved his father, and who, but for that father's untimely death, might have been to him as a second mother." There was a strong vein of sentiment in his character, which responded to the sentiment betrayed unconsciously in every line of Mrs. Tregonell's letter. His only knowledge of the father he had lost in infancy had come to him from the lips of others, and it pleased him to think that here was one whose memory must be fresher than that of any other friend, in whose mind his father's image must needs be as a living thing. He had all his life cherished a regretful fondness for that unknown father, whose shadowy picture he had vainly tried to recall among the first recollections of babyhood, the dim dreamland of half-awakened consciousness. He had frankly and promptly accepted Mrs. Tregenow's invitation, yet he felt that in going to immure himself in an old manor-house for a fortnight, anything less than a fortnight would have been uncivil, he was dooming himself to ineffable boredom. Beyond that pious pleasure in parental reminiscences, there could be no possible gratification for a man of the world who was not an ardent sportsman in such a place as Mount Royal. Mr. Hamley's instincts were of the town, towny; His pleasures were all of an intellectual kind. He had never degraded himself by vulgar profligacy, but he liked a life of excitement and variety. He had always lived at high pressure and among people posted up to the last moment of the world's history. People who drank the very latest pleasure cup with the spirit of the age, a spirit of passing frivolity, had invented, were it only the newest brand of champagne, and who, in their eagerness to gather the roses of life, outstripped old time himself, and grew old in advance of their age. He had been contemplating a fortnight in Paris as the first stage in his journey to Monaco, when Mrs. Tregonell's letter altered his plans. This was not the first time she had asked him to Mount Royal but on previous occasions his engagements had seemed to him too imperative to be foregone, and he had regretfully declined her invitations. But now the flavor of life had grown somewhat vapid for him, and he was grateful to anyone who would turn his thoughts and fancies into a new direction. "'I shall inevitably be bored there,' he said to himself, when he had littered the railway carriage with newspapers accumulated on the way, "'but I should be bored anywhere else.' When a man begins to feel the pressure of the chain upon his leg— It cannot much matter where his walks lead him. The very act of walking is his punishment. When a man comes to eight-and-twenty years of age, a man who has had very little to do in this life except to take his pleasure, a great weariness and sense of exhaustion is apt to close around him like a pall. The same man will be ever so much fresher in mind, will have ever so much more zest for life, when he comes to be forty. For then he will have entered upon those calmer enjoyments of middle age which may last him till he is eighty. But at eight-and-twenty there is a death-like calmness of feeling. Youth is gone. He has consumed all the first fruits of life. Spring and summer, with their wealth of flowers, are over. Only the quiet autumn remains for him, with her warm browns and dull greys, and cool, moist breath. The fires upon youth's altars have all died out. Youth is dead and the man who was young only yesterday fancies that he might as well be dead also. What is there left for him? Can there be any charm in this life when the looker-on has grey hair and wrinkles? Having nothing in life to do except seek his own pleasure and spend his ample income, Angus Hamley had naturally taken the time of life's march prestissimo. He had never paused in his rose-gathering to wonder whether there might not be a few thorns among the flowers, and whether he might not find them afterwards. And now the blossoms were all withered, and he was beginning to discover the lasting quality of the thorns. They were such thorns as interfered somewhat with the serenity of his days, and he was glad to turn his face westward, away from everybody he knew, or who knew anything about him. "'My character will present itself to Mrs. Tregonell as a blank page,' he said to himself. "'I wonder what she would think of me if one of my club gossips had enjoyed a quiet evening's talk with her beforehand.' A dear friend's analysis of one's character and conduct is always so flattering to both. And I have a pleasant knack of offending my dearest friends. Mr. Hamley began to look a little about him when the train had left Plymouth. The landscape was wild and romantic, but had none of that stern ruggedness which he expected to behold on the Cornish border. Deep glens and wooded dells, with hillsides steep and broken, but verdant to their topmost crest and the most wonderful oak coppices that he ever remembered to have seen. Miles upon miles of oak, as it seemed to him, now sinking into the depth of a valley, now mounting to the distant skyline, while from that verdant, undulating surface of young wood there stood forth the giants of the grove. Wide, spreading oak and towering beech, the mighty growth of many centuries. Between Lidford and Launceston the scenery grew tamer. He had fancied those deep ravines and wooded heights the prelude to a vast and awful symphony, but Mary Tavy and Lifton showed him only a pastoral landscape, with just so much wood and water as would have served for a Cresswick or a constable, and with none of these grand salvatorisk effects which he had admired in the country round Tavistock. At Launceston he found Mrs. Tregonell's landau waiting for him, with a pair of powerful chestnuts and a couple of servants whose neat brown liveries had nothing of that unsophisticated semi savagery which Mr. Hamley had expected in a place so remote. Do you drive that way? he asked, pointing to the almost perpendicular street. Yes, sir, replied the coachman. Then I think I'll stroll to the top of the hill while you are putting in my portmanteau, he said, and ascended the rustic street at a leisurely pace looking about him as he went. The thoroughfare which leads from Launceston Station to the ruined castle at the top of the hill is not an imposing promenade. Its architectural features might perhaps be best described, like the snakes of Ireland, as nil, but here and there an old-fashioned lattice with a row of flower-pots, an ancient gable, or a bit of cottage-garden hints at the picturesque. Any late additions to the domestic architecture of Launceston favor the unpretending usefulness of Camden Town rather than the aspiring aestheticism of Chelsea or Bedford Park. But, to Mr. Hamley's eye, the rugged old castle keep on the top of the hill made amends. He was not an ardent archaeologist, and he did not turn out of his way to see Launceston Church, which might well have rewarded him for his trouble. He was content to have spared those good-looking chestnuts the labor of dragging him up the steep Here they came springing up the hill. He took his place in the carriage, pulled the fur rug over his knees, and ensconced himself comfortably in the roomy back seat. "'This is a sybaritish luxury which I was not prepared for,' he said to himself. "'I am afraid I shall be rather more bored than I expected. I thought Mrs. Tregonell and her surroundings would at least have the merit of originality. But here is a carriage that must have been built by Peters.' and liveries that suggest the sartorial excellence of Conduit Street or Savile Row. He watched the landscape with a critical eye, prepared for disappointment and disillusion. First a country road between tall, ragged hedges and steep banks, a road where every now and then the branches of the trees hung low over the carriage and threatened to knock the coachman's hat off. Then they came out upon the wide waste of moorland, a thousand feet above the sea level, and Mister Hamley, acclimatized to the atmosphere of club houses, buttoned his overcoat, drew the black fur rug closer about him, and shivered a little as the keen breath of the Atlantic, sweeping over far-reaching tracts of hill and heather, blew round him. Far and wide as his gaze could reach, he saw no sign of human habitation. Was the land utterly forsaken? No. A little farther on, they passed a hamlet, so insignificant, so isolated. "'that it seemed rather as if half a dozen cottages had dropped from the sky "'than that so lonely a settlement could be the result of deliberate human inclination. "'Never in Scotland or Ireland had Mr. Hamley seen a more barren landscape or a poorer soil. "'Yet those wild wastes of heath, those distant tours, were passing beautiful, "'and the air he breathed was more inspiring and exhilarating "'than the atmosphere of any vaunted health resort which he had ever visited.' "'I think I might live to middle age "'if I were to pitch my tent on this Cornish plateau,' he thought. "'But then there are so many things in this life "'that are worth more than mere length of days.' "'He asked the names of the hamlets they passed. "'This lonely church dedicated to St. David, "'whence, oh, whence came the congregation, "'belonged to the parish of David Stowe. "'And here there was a holy well, "'and here a vicarage, "'and there, oh!' "'crowning evidence of civilization, a post-office, and there a farmhouse. "'And that was the end of David Stowe. "'A little later they came to cross roads, and the coachman touched his hat and said, "'This is Victoria,' as if he were naming a town or settlement of some kind. "'Mr. Hamley looked about him and beheld a low-roofed cottage, "'which he assumed to be some kind of public house, "'possibly capable of supplying beer and tobacco. "'But other vestige of human habitation there was none.' HE LEANED BACK IN THE CARRIAGE, LOOKING ACROSS THE HILLS, AND SAYING TO HIMSELF, WHY VICTORIA? WAS THAT UNPRETENTIOUS AND SOMEWHAT DILAPIDATED HOSTELRY THE VICTORIA HOTEL, OR THE VICTORIA ARMS, OR WAS ROYALTY'S HONORED NAME GIVEN IN AN ARBITRARY MANNER TO THE CROSSROADS and THE GRANITE FINGER-POST? HE NEVER KNEW. THE COACHMAN SAID SHORTLY, VICTORIA, AND AS VICTORIA HE EVER AFTER HEARD THAT SPOT DESCRIBED. AND NOW THE JOURNEY WAS ALL DOWNHILL. They drove downward and downward, until Mr. Hamley began to feel as if they were traveling towards the center of the earth, as if they had got altogether below the outer crust of this globe, and must be gradually nearing the unknown gulfs beneath. Yet, by some geographical mystery, when they turned out of the high road and went in at a lodge gate, and drove gently upward along an avenue of elms in whose rugged tops the rooks were screaming— Mr. Hamley found that he was still high above the undulating edges of the cliffs that overtopped the Atlantic, while the great waste of waters lay far below, golden with the last rays of the setting sun. They drove by a gentle ascent to the stone porch of Mount Royal, and here Mrs. Tregonell stood, facing the sunset, with an Indian shawl wrapped round her, waiting for her guest. "'I heard the carriage, Mr. Hamley,' she said, as Angus alighted. I hope you do not think me too impatient to see what change twelve years have made in you. I'm afraid they have not been particularly advantageous to me, he answered lightly as they shook hands. How good of you to receive me on the threshold, and what a delightful place you have here. Before I got to Launceston, I began to be afraid that Cornwall was commonplace, and now I am enchanted with it. Your moors and hills are like fairyland to me. It is a world of our own, and we are very fond of it. Said the widow, I shall be sorry if ever a railway makes Bowcastle open to everybody. And what a noble old house! exclaimed Angus as he followed his hostess across the oak panelled hall with its wide, shallow staircase, curiously carved balustrades, and lantern roof. Are you quite alone here? Oh, no, I have my niece and a young lady who is a companion to both of us. Angus Hamley shuddered, Three women. He was to exist for a fortnight in a house with three solitary females, a niece, rustic and gawky, the companion sour and frumpish. He began hurriedly to cast about in his mind for a convenient friend to whom he could telegraph to send him a telegram, summoning him back to London on urgent business. He was still meditating this when the butler opened the door of a spacious room lined from floor to ceiling with books, and he followed Mrs. Tregonell in and found himself in the bosom of the family. The simple picture of home comfort, of restfulness and domestic peace, which met his curious gaze as he entered, pleased him better than anything he had seen of late. Club life, with its too studious indulgence of man's native selfishness and love of ease, fashionable life, with its insatiable craving for that latter-day form of display which calls itself culture, art, or beauty, had afforded him no vision so enchanting as the wide hearth and high chimney of this sober, book-lined room with the fair and girlish form kneeling in front of the old dog-stove, framed in the glaring light of the fire. The tea-table had been wheeled near the hearth, and Miss Bridgman sat before the bright red tea-tray and old brass kettle, ready to administer to the wants of the traveller, who would be hardly human if he did not thirst for a cup of tea after driving across the moor. Christabel knelt in front of the fire, worshipping and being worshipped by a sleek black-and-white sheepdog, "'native to the soil and of a rare intelligence, "'a creature by no means approaching "'the Scotch Collie in physical beauty, "'but of a fond and faithful nature "'born to be the friend of man. "'As Christabel rose and turned to greet the stranger, "'Mr. Hamley was agreeably reminded of an old picture, "'a Lely or a Neller, perhaps. "'This was not in any wise the rustic image "'which had flashed across his mind "'at the mention of Mrs. Tregonell's niece. "'He had expected to see a bouncing, "'countrified maiden,' Rosy, buxom, the picture of commonplace health and vigour. The girl he saw was nearer skin to the lily than the rose, tall, slender, dazzlingly fair, not fragile or sickly in any wise, for the erect figure was finely moulded, the swan like throat was round and full. He was prepared for the florid beauty of a milkmaid, and he found himself face to face with the elegance of an ideal duchess the picturesque loveliness of an old Venetian portrait. Christabel's dark brown velvet gown and square-point lace collar, the bright hair, falling in shadowy curls over her forehead, and rolled into a loose knot at the back of her head, sinned in no wise against Mr. Hamley's notions of good taste. There was a picturesqueness about the style which indicated that Miss Courtenay belonged to that advanced section of womankind which takes its ideas less from modern fashion plates than from old pictures. So long as her archaism went no further back than Van Dyke or Maroney he would admire and approve, but he shuddered at the thought that to-morrow she might burst upon him in a medieval morning gown, with high-shouldered sleeves, a ruff, and a satchel. The picturesque idea was good within limits, but one never knew how far it might go. There was nothing picturesque about the lady sitting before the tea-tray who looked up brightly and gave him a gracious bend of her small, neat head. IN acknowledgment OF MRS. TREGONELL'S INTRODUCTION. MR. Hamley, MISS. BRIDGMAN. THIS WAS THE COMPANION, AND THE COMPANION WAS PLAIN. NOT UNPLEASANTLY PLAIN, NOT IN ANY MANNER REPULSIVE, BUT A LADY ABOUT WHOSE LOOKS THERE COULD BE HARDLY ANY COMPROMISE. HER COMPLEXION WAS OF A SALLOW DARKNESS, UNRELIEVED BY ANY GLOW OF COLOR. HER EYES WERE GREY, ACUTE, HONEST, FRIENDLY, BUT NOT BEAUTIFUL. HER NOSE WAS SHARP AND POINTED not at all a bad nose, but there was a hardness about nose and mouth and chin as of features cut out of bone with a very sharp knife. Her teeth were good, and in a lovelier mouth might have been the object of much admiration. Her hair was of that nondescript monotonous brown which has been unkindly called bottled green, but it was arranged with admirable neatness, and offended less than many a tangled pate upon whose locks of spurious gold the owner has wasted much time and money. There was nothing unpardonable in Miss Bridgman's plainness, as Angus Hamley said of her later. Her small figure was neatly made, and her dark grey gown fitted to perfection. "'I hope you like the little bit of Cornwall that you have seen this afternoon, Mr. Hamley,' said Christabel, seating herself in a low chair in the shadow of the tall chimney-piece fenced in by her aunt's larger chair. "'I am enraptured with it. I came here with a desire to be intensely Cornish.' I AM PREPARED TO BELIEVE IN WITCHES, WARLOCKS. WE HAVE NO WARLOCKS, SAID Christabel. THEY BELONG TO THE NORTH. WELL, THEN, WISE WOMEN, WICKED YOUNG MEN WHO PLAY FOOTBALL ON SUNDAY, AND GET THEMSELVES TURNED INTO GRANITE, ROCKING STONES, MAGIC WELLS, DRUIDS, AND KING ARTHUR. I BELIEVE THE PRINCIPAL POINT IS TO BE OPEN TO CONVICTION ABOUT ARTHUR. NOW I AM PREPARED TO SWALLOW EVERYTHING, HIS CASTLE, THE RIVER WHERE HIS CROWN WAS FOUND AFTER THE FIGHT. Was it his crown, by the by, or somebody else's, which he found, his hair-brushes, his boots, anything you please to show me?' "'We will show you his quoit to-morrow, on the road to Tintagel,' said Miss Bridgman. "'I don't think you would like to swallow that, actually.' He hurled it from Tintagel to Travalga in one of its sportive moods. "'We shall be able to give you plenty of amusement if you are a good walker and are fond of hills.' "'I adore them in the abstract, contemplated from one's windows or in a picture.' But there is an incompatibility between the human anatomy and a road set on end, like a ladder, which I have never yet overcome. Apart from the outside question of my legs, which are obvious failures when tested by an angle of forty-five degrees, I am afraid my internal machinery is not quite so tough as it ought to be for a thorough enjoyment of mountaineering. Mrs. Tregonell sighed ever so faintly in the twilight. She was thinking of her first lover, and how that fragility which meant early death, had showed itself in his inability to enjoy the moorland walks which were the delight of her girlhood. "'The natural result of bad habits,' said Miss Bridgman briskly. "'How can you expect to be strong or active, when I dare say you have spent the better part of your life in handsome cabs and express trains?' "'I don't mean to be impertinent, but I know that is the general way with gentlemen out of the shooting and hunting season.' "'And as I am no sportsman, I am somewhat exaggerated example of the vice of laziness "'fostered by congenial circumstances, acting on a lymphatic temperament. "'If you write books, as I believe most ladies do nowadays, "'you should put me into one of them as an awful warning.' "'I don't write books, and if I did, I would not flatter your vanity "'by making you my model sinner,' retorted Jessie. "'But I'll do something better for you, if Christabel will help me. "'I'll reform you.' A million thanks for the mere thought. I hope the process will be pleasant. I hope so, too. We shall begin by walking you off your legs. They are so indifferent as a means of locomotion that I could very well afford to lose them, if you could hold out any hope of my getting a better pair. A week hence, if you submit to my treatment, you will be as active as a chamois hunter in Manfred. Enchanting, always provided that you and Miss Courtenay will follow the chase with me. "'Depend upon it. We shall not trust you to take your walks alone, unless you have a pedometer which will bear witness to the distance you have done, and which you will be content to submit to our inspection on your return,' replied Jessie sternly. "'I am afraid that you are a terribly severe high priestess of this new form of culture,' said Mr. Hamley, looking up from his teacup with a lazy smile. "'Almost as bad as the dweller on the threshold in Bulwer's Zanoni.' "'There is a dweller on the threshold of every science "'and every admirable mode of life, and his name is Idleness,' "'answered Miss Bridgman. "'The vie the force of letting things alone,' said Angus. "'Yes, that is a tremendous power, "'nobly exemplified by vestries and board of works, "'to say nothing of cabinets, bishops, and the high court of chancery. "'I delight in that verse of scripture. "'Their strength is to sit still.' "'There shall be very little sitting still for you "'if you submit yourself to Christabel and me,' replied Miss Bridgman. "'I have never tried the water-cure. "'The descriptions I have heard from adepts have been too repellent. "'But I have an idea that this system of yours "'must be rather worse than hydropathy,' said Angus musingly, "'evidently very much entertained at the way in which Miss Bridgman "'had taken him in hand. "'I was not going to let him pose after Lamartine's Poet Mourant." "'Just because his father died of lung disease,' said Jessie. ten minutes afterwards, when the warning gong had sounded and Mr. Hamley had gone to his room to dress for dinner, and the two young women were whispering together before the fire while Mrs. Tregonell indulged in a placid doze. "'Do you think he is consumptive like his father?' asked Christabel with a compassionate look. "'He has a very delicate appearance.' hollow-cheeked and prematurely old, like a man who has lived on tobacco and brandy and soda and has spent his nights in clubhouse card-rooms. We have no right to suppose that, said Christabel, since we know really nothing about him. Major Bree told me that he has lived a rackety life and that if he were not to pull up very soon he would be ruined both in health and fortune. What can the Major know about him? exclaimed Christabel contemptuously. This Major Bree was a great friend of Christabel's. "'but there are times when one's nearest and dearest "'are too provoking for endurances. "'Major Bree has been buried alive in Cornwall "'for the last twenty years. "'He is at least a quarter of a century behind the age,' "'she said impatiently. "'He spent a fortnight in London the year before last,' "'said Jessie. "'It was then that he heard such a bad account of Mr. Hamley.' "'Did he go about to clubs and places "'making inquiries like a private detective?' "'said Christabel, still contemptuous.' "'I hate such fetching and carrying.' "'Here he comes to answer for himself,' replied Jessie as the door opened and a servant announced Major Bree. Mrs. Tregonell started from her slumbers at the opening of the door and rose to greet her guest. He was a very frequent visitor, so frequent that he might be said to live at Mount Royal, although his nominal abode was a cottage on the outskirts of Castle. A stone cottage on the crest of a steep hillside with a delightful little garden perched, as it were, on the edge of a verdant abyss. He was tall, stout, elderly, grey and florid, altogether a comfortable-looking man, clean shaved, save for a thin grey moustache with a genuine cavalry droop, iron grey eyebrows, which looked like a repetition of the moustache on a somewhat smaller scale, keen grey eyes, a pleasant smile and a well-set-up figure. He dressed well, with a sobriety becoming his years, and was always the pink of neatness. A man welcome everywhere on account of an inborn pleasantness, which prompted him always to say and do the right thing, but most of all welcome at Mount Royal as the first cousin of the late squires, and Mrs. Tregonell's guide, philosopher, and friend in all matters relating to the outside world. "'of which, despite his twenty years' hibernation at Castle, "'the widow supposed him to be an acute observer and an infallible judge. "'Was he not one of the few inhabitants of that western village "'who took in the Times newspaper?' "'Well,' exclaimed Major Bree, addressing himself generally to the three ladies, "'he has come. What do you think of him?' "'He is painfully like his poor father,' said Mrs. Tregonell. "'He has a most interesting face and winning manner,' and I'm afraid we shall all get ridiculously fond of him,' said Miss Bridgman decisively. Christabel said nothing. She knelt on the hearth-rug, playing with Randy, the black-and-white sheepdog. "'And what have you to say about him, Christabel?' asked the Major. "'Nothing. I have not had time to form an opinion,' replied the girl, and then, lifting her clear blue eyes to the Major's friendly face, she said gravely, "'But I think, Uncle Oliver, it was very unkind and unfair of you "'to prejudice Jessie against him before he came here.' "'Unkind? Unfair? Here's a shower of abuse? "'Ay, prejudice?' "'Oh, I remember. "'Mrs. Tregonell asked me what people thought of him in London, "'and I was obliged to acknowledge that his reputation was, well, "'no better than that of the majority of young men "'who have more money than common sense.' But that was two years ago. Nous avons changé tout cela. If he was wicked then, he must be wicked now, said Christabel. Wicked is a monstrously strong word, said the Major. Besides, that does not follow. A man may have a few wild oats to sow, and yet become a very estimable person afterwards. Miss Bridgman is tremendously sharp. "'She'll be able to find out all about Mr. Hamley from personal observation "'before he has been here a week. "'I defy him to hide his weak points from her.' "'What is the use of being plain and insignificant "'if one has not some advantage over one's superior fellow-creatures?' "'asked Jessie. "'Miss Bridgman has too much expression to be plain, "'and she is far too clever to be insignificant,' "'said Major Bree with a stately bow.' He always put on a stately manner when he addressed himself to Jessie Bridgman and treated her in all things with as much respect as if she had been a queen. He explained to Christabel that this was the homage which he paid to the royalty of intellect. But Christabel had a shrewd suspicion that the major cherished a secret passion for Miss Bridgman, as exalted and as hopeless as the love that Chastelard bore for Mary Stuart. He had only a small pittance besides his half pay and he had a very poor opinion of his own merits. So it was but natural that, at fifty-five, he should hesitate to offer himself to a young lady of six-and-twenty, of whose sharp tongue he had a wholesome awe. Mr. Hamley came back before much more could be said about him, and a few minutes afterwards they all went in to dinner, and in the brighter lamplight of the dining-room Major Bree and the three ladies had a better opportunity of forming their opinion as to the external graces of their guest. He was good-looking, that fact even malice could hardly dispute. "'Not so handsome as the absent Leonard,' Mrs. Tregonell told herself complacently. "'But she was constrained at the same time to acknowledge "'that her son's broadly moulded features and florid complexion "'lacked the charm and interest which a woman's eye found "'in the delicate chiseling and subdued tones of Angus Hamley's countenance. "'His eyes were darkest grey, his complexion was fair and somewhat pallid, "'his hair brown, with a natural curl which neither fashion "'nor the barber could altogether suppress.' His cheeks were more sunken than they should have been at eight-and-twenty, and the large dark eyes were unnaturally bright. All this the three ladies and Major Bree had ample time for observing during the leisurely course of dinner. There was no flagging in the conversation, from the beginning to the end of the repast. Mr. Hamley was ready to talk about anything and everything, and his interest in the most trifling local subjects, whether real or assumed, made him a delightful companion. In the drawing-room after dinner he proved even more admirable, for he discovered a taste for, and knowledge of, the best music, which delighted Jessie and Christabel, who were both enthusiasts. He had read every book they cared for, and a wide world of books besides, and was able to add to their stock of information upon all their favorite subjects without the faintest touch of arrogance. "'I don't think you can help liking him, Jessie," said Christabel as the two girls went upstairs to bed. The younger lingered a little in Miss Bridgman's room for the discussion of their latest ideas. There was a cheerful fire burning in the large basket grate, for autumn nights were chill upon that wild coast. Christabel assumed her favorite attitude in front of the fire, with her faithful Randy winking and blinking at her and the fire alternately. He was a privileged dog, allowed to sleep on the sheepskin mat in the gallery outside his mistress's door, and to go into her room every morning in company with the maid who carried her early cup of tea, when after the exchange of a few remarks in baby language on her part, and expressed on his by a series of curious grins and much wagging of his insignificant apology for a tale, he would dash out of the room and out of the house for his morning constitutional among the sheep upon some distant hill, coming home with an invigorated appetite in time for the family breakfast at nine o'clock. "'I don't think you can help liking him, as—as a casual acquaintance,' repeated Christabel, finding that Jessie stood in a dreamy silence twisting her one diamond ring, a birthday gift from Miss Courtenay, round and round upon her slender finger. "'I don't suppose any of us can help liking him?' Jessie answered at last, with her eyes on the fire. "'All I hope is that some of us will not like him too much. He has brought a new element into our lives—a new interest— which may end by being a painful one. I feel distrustful of him. Why distrustful? Why, Jessie? you, who are generally the very essence of flippancy, who make light of almost everything in life, except religion, thank God, you have not come to that yet, you, to be so serious about such a trifling matter as a visit from a man who will most likely be gone back to London in a fortnight, gone out of our lives altogether, perhaps— "'for I don't suppose he will care to repeat his experiences in a lonely country house. "'He may be gone, perhaps, yes, and it is quite possible that he may never return, "'but shall we be quite the same after he has left us? "'Will nobody regret him, wish for his return, yearn for it, sigh for it, die for it, "'feeling life worthless, a burden without him? "'Why, Jessie, you look like a pythoness!' Bell, Bell, my darling, my innocent one, you do not know what it is to care for a bright particular star, and know how remote it is from your life, never to be brought any nearer. I felt afraid to-night, when I saw you and Mister Hamley at the piano-you playing, he leaning over you as you played, both seeming so happy, so united by the sympathy of the moment. If he is not a good man, if-but we have no reason to think ill of him. You remember what Uncle Oliver said. He had only been uh, a little rackety, like other young men, said Christabel eagerly. And then, with a sudden embarrassment, reddening and laughing shyly, she added, And indeed, Jessie, if it is any idea of danger to me that is troubling your wise head, there is no need for alarm. I am not made of such inflammable stuff. I am not the kind of girl to fall in love with a first comer." "'With the first-comer, no. "'But when the prince comes in a fairy-tale, "'it matters little whether he come first or last. "'Fate has settled the whole story beforehand. "'Fate has nothing to say about me and Mr. Hamley.' "'No, Jessie, believe me, there is no danger for me. "'And I don't suppose that you are going to fall in love with him?' "'Because I am so old,' said Miss Bridgman, still looking at the fire. "'No.' It would rather be ridiculous in a person of my age, plain and passé, to fall in love with your Alcibiades. No, Jessie, but because you are too wise ever to be carried away by a sentimental fancy. But why do you speak of him so contemptuously? One would think you had taken a dislike to him. We ought at least to remember that he is my aunt's friend and the son of someone she once dearly loved. Once, repeated Jessie softly. Does not once in that case mean always? She was thinking of the squire's commonplace good looks and portly figure, as represented in the big picture in the dining-room, the picture of a man in a red coat, leaning against the shoulder of a big bay horse and with a pack of harriers fawning round him, and wondering whether the image of that dead man, whose son was in the house to-night, had not sometimes obtruded itself upon the calm plenitude of Mrs. Tregonell's domestic joys. "'Don't be afraid that I shall forget my duty to your aunt or your aunt's guest, dear,' she said suddenly as if awaking from a reverie. "'You and I will do all in our power to make him happy, and to shake him out of lazy London ways, and then, when we have patched up his health, and the moorland air has blown a little colour into his hollow cheeks, we will send him back to his clubs and his theatres, and forget all about him.' "'And now, good-night, my Christabel,' she said, looking at her watch. "'See? It is close upon midnight.' Dreadful dissipation for Mount Royal, where half-past ten is the usual hour. Christabel kissed her and departed, Randy following to the door of her chamber. Such a pretty room, with old panelled walls painted pink and grey, old furniture, old china, snowy draperies and books, a girl's daintily bound books, selected and purchased by herself, in every available corner, a neat cottage piano in a recess, a low easy-chair by the fire with a five-o'clock tea-table in front of it. Desks, portfolios, work-baskets, all the frivolities of a girl's life, but everything arranged with a womanly neatness which indicated industrious habits and a well-ordered mind. No scattered sheets of music, no fancy work pitched and tossed about the room, no slovenliness claiming to be excused as artistic disorder. Christabel said her prayers and read her accustomed portion of scripture, but not without some faint wrestlings with Satan, who on this occasion took the shape of Angus Hamley. Her mind was overcharged with wonder at this new phenomenon in daily life, a man so entirely different from any of the men she had ever met hitherto, so accomplished, so highly cultured. Yet, taking his accomplishments and culture as a thing of course, as if all men were so. She thought of him as she lay awake for the first hour of the still night, watching the fire fade and die, and listening to the long roll of the waves, hardly audible at Mount Royal amidst all the commonplace noises of day, but heard in the solemn silence of night. She let her fancy shape a vision of her aunt's vanished youth, that one brief bright dream of happiness, so miserably broken, and wondered and wondered how it was possible for anyone to outlive such a grief. Still more incredible did it seem that any one who had so loved and so lost could ever listen to another lover. And yet the thing had been done, and Mrs. Tregonell's married life had been called happy. She always spoke of the squire as the best of men, was never weary of praising him, loved to look up at his portrait on the wall, preserved every unpicturesque memorial of his unpicturesque life. Heavy gold and silver snuff-boxes, clumsy hunting-crops, spurs, guns, fishing-rods. The relics of his murderous pursuits would have filled an arsenal. And how fondly she loved the son who resembled that departed father, save in lacking some of his best qualities. How she doted on Leonard, the most commonplace and unattractive of young men. The thought of her cousin set Christabel on a new train of speculation. If Leonard had been at home when Mr. Hamley came to Mount Royal— How would they two have suited each other? Like fire and water, like oil and vinegar, like the wolf and the lamb, like any two creatures most antagonistic by nature. It was a happy accident that Leonard was away. She was still thinking when she fell asleep with that uneasy sense of pain and trouble in the future which was always suggested to her by Leonard's image. A dim, unshapen difficulty waiting for her somewhere along the untrodden road of her life a lion in the path. End of chapter 2